So uh, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. As usual, I'm joined by Josh Holt from Iowa. And uh, this is a special episode. We are focusing exclusively on Jay Posna or the uh, Journal of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America tonight. We've got two very special guests. Uh, we're joined by Dr. Ken Noonan from University of Wisconsin and uh, Dr. J.R. Cruz from Brown. And uh, we're going to get into some recent publications in... Uh, and Jay Posner that were particularly exciting. Um, but first, let's get to know our guests a little bit. Ken, why don't we start with you? Would you mind just telling the audience a little bit about what your practice is like and what your favorite surgeries are? Yeah, thank you for having having us on for this uh, podcast. It's great to talk about Jay Posner, where, where it's come from, where it's going. I'm a pediatric orthopedist in, at the University of Wisconsin, and and I guess I'm kind of an old school pediatric orthopedist because you know we don't have a very big group. Uh, we're not like Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where we have 25 pediatric subspecialists. So uh, my partners, Dr. Laura Belair and Pam Lang and I, we we all have to do a bit of everything. And so uh, I'm a true generalist. I do scoliosis surgery. I do tumor reconstructions. I do lots of trauma work. Uh, I do upper extremity work and cerebral palsy and uh, all manner of operations, really. The only, the only things I don't do is congenital hand surgery. And I don't do sports medicine because uh, Pam Lang is superb at that. So that's kind of my practice. I kind of get to do it all, which is, uh, I, I think, a, a blessing. Honestly, it's fun. It's very impressive in this day and age. So what's your favorite surgery to see on the schedule to be walking into? Well, who doesn't love a good both bone forearm fracture? Uh, I do like doing uh, tendon transfers for cerebral palsy. Uh, love a good challenging scoliosis case. I like helping kids with tumors. I guess I, I really I really like it all. I, there's not one that I don't like. I used to, I do joke, however, that uh, when you're doing a growth plate ablation for limb length discrepancy, you do get a little nauseated when you take that cartilage <laughs> out. But that's about the extent of it. <laughs> the sound of the curette on cartilage. <laughs> totally agree. And uh, Jr., how about you? What uh, what's your practice like? What's your favorite surgery to have on the schedule? I do sports medicine, but also a lot of general peds ortho. So I would say about 50% of my practice is like general peds ortho, trauma, you know, baby hips and some neuromuscular. I don't do spine. The only spine I do is tibial spine. So no, no, uh, no, no spine of the back. Um, and then, the, you know, the other 50% is, is sports. My training, I was uh, in the Air Force for a few years after residency. So I did a lot of sports medicine there. And then uh, I did my fellowship at CHOP with Ted Ganley and Todd Lawrence and uh, Larry Wells. They were there. They had a very busy sports practice. So I kind of migrated towards that. And then when I found my job, they were just happened to be looking for like a peds person that could do a lot of sports Favorite surgery? Uh, I, I kind of mentioned it already. I, I do like a tibial spine. You know, it's a it's a fracture. It's it's sportsy. You know, you can use a scope, and they can be challenging. It can be straightforward. So that it's, I think it kind of keeps you on your toes. Well, good answer because we've got some tibial spine stuff to talk about tonight. <laughs> and so, before we really get into the material, would you guys give us sort of a update on the current state of Jay Posna and where things have come from, where they're going? Yeah, I, I could talk about where we've come from, and I think JR could talk about where we're going. You know, about three years ago, Steve Frick uh, and the presidential line 
uh, recognized that, you know, we were having challenges with the state of affairs from pediatric orthopedic publishing and that although we've had great partnership with Walters Kluwer and JPO, uh, we really, really were limited on page counts and content and we're looking for a venue to get more educational materials out for membership. And that was really the genesis of the uh, of Jay Posna was to try to supplement uh, what was being done in JPO, JBJS, and other journals. And um, with his uh, the presidential lines leadership uh, and uh, and the recruiting, just an outstanding uh, editorial board. And of course, uh, with the expertise of the Posna whiz kid Brian Tompkins, we were able to put together. Uh, this online journal, which not many people know, cost us about you know five hundred dollars to get going, and about half that was coffee for Brian. And since then, we've taken off, and we've taken off because of the membership of Posna. There's so many people in our organization who just want to contribute, to want to teach, and want to educate. It was really almost like a fire hose of interest, and and we're just really fortunate to have such a great society of folks, and so. For the last three years, we've really been focusing on educational content, current concepts reviews, master surgical techniques, surgical panels, uh, opinion pieces, historical pieces on important pediatric orthopedists and trends, uh, committee reports, uh, initiatives such as uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, all things that, you know, really haven't been able to find their way into contemporary journals, found their way into Jay Posna. QSVI, another great uh, thing that Posna was known is known for, uh, really has is not accepted in other journals. So we really we we became the source uh, for publication for all these important things, and uh, just really pleased to to bring it to that level. And you know now now we're at a new dawn, and uh, Jr. Uh, Jr. Cruz is our, our deputy editor for that. And uh, why don't you talk about where we're going, Jr. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ken. I mean, I can, and I think the the rest of the editorial board can thank Ken enough for his leadership, literally starting a new journal and a journal hopefully that will stand the test of time and be representative of the positive membership and all of pediatric orthopedics. Uh, so thanks, Ken, for that. But yeah, going forward, now that the JPO relationship and, and positive relationship will be kind of uh, winding down a little bit uh, starting in the new year, uh, JPOSNA will be open for business in terms of original research. So like Ken said, um, the content that's been published so far has been mostly educational review papers, opinion pieces, et cetera. But now we will be starting to accept, um, you know, hypothesis-driven original research. And I think that's really going to open up uh, the journal for really good quality content. So, uh, you know, this this kind of announcement uh, can serve as a call for, you know, for papers starting starting in the new year on January 1st. Uh, you can start submitting your uh, PDH orthopedic papers on all topics, you know, um, uh, to JPASA. And uh, there'll be uh, the JPASA website will change uh, in the new year to start uh, accepting papers from original research and with uh, detailed author instructions on how to actually uh, do that as well. So uh, with that said, uh, the other thing I guess I, I should say is that we will be relying heavily on you know, uh, our peers for this peer review process expect to get some communication regarding uh, on how to volunteer to be uh, a peer reviewer uh, for for our you know for our journal for Posner's journal. So, 
uh, I would um, you know encourage people that are interested to really to really help contribute. Well, congratulations and thank you to both of you guys on this journal and everything you've done. Um, Ken, I, I don't know how you have continued to practice pediatric orthopedics and and built this journal. It's really phenomenal. And I can very honestly say it's my favorite journal to read. The spread of content is always just really uh, engaging and eye-opening. Yeah, and that's, um, that's one of the things I'm excited about. And I'd be curious, JR, is, is the goal of some of the hypothesis-driven research to keep some of that breadth of not only educational and kind of academic stuff that's been published now, but also research wise kind of keep some of that kind of width that you guys have been able to capture. Yeah. I mean, I, I Posna was started because of it was, it wasn't called Posna originally, right? It was, I think it was a pediatric orthopedic surgery study group or something. So I think the, the founding fathers of Posna really had research at its core. You know, that's, that's why our organization exists. And, you know, you guys have been to the meetings and talk, talking to our colleagues. I think as, as in general, you know, if you're a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, you're very interested in advancing pediatric orthopedic knowledge through research. So I think it really dovetails well with the positive mission. And this is just another um, uh, avenue to really promote that mission. Yeah, it's yeah. really exciting. The two, the two signature meetings for our society is the annual meeting, which is research-based, and IPOS, which is educationally-based. And, you know, we started with the journal, like Jay Posner was going to be the IPOS to JPO's Posner annual meeting. But now that we can do both, we'll be able to have the synergy of putting together almost packages. You could have a, a great basic science research paper on distraction osteogenesis next to a review of precise nailing and a historical piece on Ilizaroth. So there can be uh, groupings of interesting articles. The nice thing about Jay Posner is we're, uh, on a, uh, we're online. And so we can have as much content and video that we want to engage our, uh, to engage our uh, readers. And all of the content such as uh, surgical techniques, uh, master surgical techniques, all that flows to Posner Academy where it sits as a repository for education for residents and trainees and for all of us as time goes on. I can tell you this week I was uh, doing a, a meta casting and I could not remember what was the weight you put on cervical traction. So I go on Jay Posner, look up EDF casting and boom, right there, 40% body weight. So we want Jay Posner to be all things pediatric orthopedics for all people who practice pediatric orthopedics, education, research, education, instruction. So as we grow and as the editorial board and JR and I work together to make it a synergistic product, we're hoping that uh, people will find uh, engaging and informative. Great. I think we can all be pretty, uh, pretty confident having you guys at the helm. So uh, before we jump into the content, which is why we're here tonight, I do just want to give a shout out to your partner since you mentioned her, Pam Lang, who is a dear friend of mine and is a co-host on another podcast we work on that was uh, sort of started through a POSNA grant called Ped Sports. And she's been uh, contributing to that for, I guess, about a year and a half now and as just, you know, as smart and well-versed in the literature as you could you can imagine. So it's always a pleasure to work with her on that, uh, on that show. Yeah, she's awesome. So we scanned back over the content of Jay Posner for the last year, looking for some exciting stuff and thought a really fun thing to talk about would be the awards papers. Uh, just like you guys mentioned, there's all sorts of content in Jay Posner. One of the cool things is the award papers from the annual meeting. Um, so let's just run th through some of those real fast. 
The first one on the list was the best QSV, quality safety value paper. It was out of uh, Nicholas Children's Hospital in Miami about various cast covers, you know, speaking of sort of unique content for a journal. And the authors compared eight methods for waterproofing casts during bathing or swimming, including five brands of cast covers, as well as some homemade stuff like a plastic bag with duct tape, a plastic bag with a rubber band, and even saran wrap. And they found that the plastic bag with duct tape was actually the most effective, and it was also the most cost-effective. As for the brand names, which I had to look up, I I admit I was not familiar with this stuff. Um, They tested Freedom, Blocks, and Dry Pro, um, and they all worked pretty well, pretty comparable to the plastic bag with duct tape. Just a little more expensive and not quite as as good a seal. So my first question is, what do you guys do for uh, cast waterproofing, or do you just leave it to the cast technicians? In preparation for this, I looked through the abstract. It was very interesting. Like I never even thought of the duct tape thing, which is perfect. What what can duct tape do? You know, uh, so um, they should have sterile duct tape nowhere. Uh, what I well, would, it's called I band, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. This paper will actually change my practice a bit because I used to tell parents they would ask. But we get we all get this question, and they would ask what to do, and I would tell I would do the double bag washcloth technique. So I would tell them put a garbage bag or some sort of plastic barrier on the cast and you put a washcloth up top with some sort of elastic, then another plastic bag, another elastic. But according to this paper, that technique is terrible. Um, So I've been telling patients for the past, you know, six years, the wrong thing. And then uh, the other thing is I I, I also, if they didn't really like that method, I would tell them about the the dry pro. I am aware of that. If you go on your Amazon app and uh, put cast cover, that's like one of the first things that pops up is the dry pro. And Anecdotally, uh, patients' families did have a lot of um, good experience with it, so I would kind of refer them to that. And I recently, just this week, this question came up, and I told, I referred them to the, the Dry Pro, and I said, "Oh, you know, it's about twenty twenty five bucks on Amazon." I popped it up on my app, and it was like forty seven dollars, and I was like, "Whoa, the the <laughs> this is way more than what I remember it being." And I guess you can chalk it up to you know, supply chain issues. So now it's, you know, this is painful uh, uh, for, for families to, to pay double what they were paying before for something that you're going to use for, you know, four to six weeks or something. So I think I'm going to start telling them about the, uh, you know, the duct tape method. I'm not sure how I'm going to pitch that to them exactly. It's like, I, I feel like they're going to give me a couple of uh, side eyes, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it, how it goes. You know, it's funny. I asked our cast technicians and they said they have a a brand name that they have in the cast room they can offer. And they also explain, uh, you know, a garbage bag with duct tape. That's sort of their, their go-to is to, uh, is to give those two options. So, uh, you know, I was, I was impressed. They're very, uh, (laughs) evidence-based. I left it up. I left it up to the cast techs when one of my family said that they went to fleet farm and got, uh, uh, these veterinary gloves that veterinarians use that can go up to their shoulder. And I was explaining to one family about how you can buy these gloves that veterinarians use to stick in the uterus of a cow to turn the calf. And then when the daughter got a little nauseous, I recognized <laughs> that I probably shouldn't talk about this anymore. And I leave it up to the cast steps. <laughs> and then, you know, this paper, it was actually more about submerging, like bathing or even swimming in casts than it really was about showering, which is what I usually think about. Do you guys ever you know, encourage or allow, you know, just swimming in the summer in a cast with some sort of cover, or is that just off limits? Off limits uh, to me. Yeah, I, I discourage it, but, you know, there's many, many office visits because of, uh, because of that. Definitely. 
And then the last question that I was thinking of when I read this, you know, sometimes I wonder if we should be using even more waterproof casts. I'm always hesitant if we're like doing a reduction in a mold. What, what do you guys think? Is, are, are there certain times we should and should not be using waterproof casts? For me personally, because uh, uh, I'm in a more of a tempered climate and, and it's not hot all the time. And, you know, I tell families, I, I tell them, you know, a hiking boot, a hiking boot is certainly waterproof, right? And you could go put your boot in the water and the boot's going to be fine. They'll dry out eventually, but your skin's going to be pretty gross and macerated underneath. It doesn't dra drain and dry pretty well. So we have some pictures up on the wall of people who've got some pretty macerated skin from, you know, casts that they did get wet and they never really fully dried. And I don't live in Florida. I don't live in California. So it's not much of a problem for us here. So, you know, I practice in Rhode Island, the, o the ocean state. So summers in Rhode Island are uh, sailing, water sports, et cetera. So I, I actually, I do use waterproof cats, but not, not for the first cats. And it's usually, it's usually typically just for a short arm. So once we're transitioning them from a both bone forearm fracture from a long arm cast to a short arm cast, that's when, uh, you know, families will ask and I'm, you know, I'm open to doing that if, if they want. So I have no problem with that. Got it. That's a nice rule of thumb. All right. Next, next paper, next abstract was the uh, best trauma paper from the meeting on uh, clavicle fractures. It was a multi-center study with eight centers and it was the FACT, F-A-C-T study group with lead author Colleen Sabatini from UCSF. And it was a really impressive prospective study. They enrolled 82 patients with uh, relatively complex Z-type clavicle fractures. In other words, segmental clavicle fractures with a rotated or in sort of 90 degrees uh, intercalary segment. And they found that the non-op patients did every bit as well as the op patients with no different inpatient reported outcomes after two years. And they pretty strongly concluded that we should uh, be non-oping essentially all pediatric and adolescent clavicle fractures. What do you guys think? Are there clavicle fractures in your practices that get surgery? And if so, how do you like to fix them? Well, I think that's a this is a really great paper, and I, I I commend the authors on working working this paper. Not only was the question important, but the organization to run such a good study is really impressive. I'm very non-operative. I have had one patient in the last three years where this where the clavicle was almost through the skin. And that's probably my main indication now based upon this paper and others. So that's the only one I really fix. Yeah. So here's another, this is another paper. I mean, I guess these are why these are award papers, right? This is another paper that really uh, opened my eyes. Uh, you know, as a young uh, attending or uh, starting out in practice, a Z type clavicle fracture, you know, in the adolescent high school kid, maybe junior or senior in high school, I, I was talking to them about surgery. I would still kind of give them the option, but I thought that giving them all the information and kind of guiding their decision, uh, I thought that surgery for a Z-type short and comminuted fracture was was reasonable. But this, after attending the meeting in May and, you know, Colleen gave this presentation, it re this really opened my eyes. It's like, oh man, maybe I should, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. So I've definitely gotten a lot less um, bullish on, on these types of fractures. So uh, even within this, you know, this, this year I've done, I've definitely done uh, with these specific fractures, you know, kind of had to talk patients out of, out of surgery based on this data. And it's hard, you know, they, they always want to look at their x-ray and the x-ray looks terrible and you can control what the x-ray looks like, you know, easily with a surgery, but is that, that's not what we, that's not an indication that you're going to find in a textbook. You know, I spend more time talking patients out of clavicle fracture surgery now than, uh, than into it. 
Yeah, I am with you there. Um, this brings up a painful memory for me because right around the time of the annual meeting when we were actually discussing this on, on the show, I was dealing with a patient who had a P-acnes, or I guess now they're called C-acnes infection of a clavicle that we fixed. You know, it was, it was one of those just horrible x-rays, probably three centimeters shortened, according to the adult literature, was just a no-brainer. So we fixed it, everything went great, and then got an infected non-union. So for me, I am with you right now. They need to either be open or have a lot of skin compromise to fix it. And I will also take this opportunity to give a shout out to Dave Bennett at Phoenix Children's Hospital and his uh, co-author, Aaron Krasovich, who's a PA at Rady Children's Hospital, who Josh and I got to know while we were out there. But they recently wrote a book that's available on Amazon. I think it's about 30 bucks called Fracture Healing in Children. And it's basically a series of pictures of x-rays of all these different fractures that are horribly displaced and then showing them remodel over time. And just this week, I had a really bad clavicle in clinic and busted out the book that I keep right there in clinic at all times now. And it was so helpful. I just took um, the patients, the family through two kids about the same age with really bad clavicle fractures. And, uh, you know, I'm with you, JR. It's a hard conversation. And uh, I was I was grateful to, to Dave and Aaron for that work at that point. I have that book also in the clinic. And I think I learned about it from this podcast. I don't remember exactly. But, uh, you know, that's one of those books. It's like, why didn't I think of that? You know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, next up, a paper, this was the best e-poster, is called Delays in Tibial Spine Fractures. Uh, our guest tonight, Dr. J.R. Cruz, is one of the co-authors, which works out well. And this is from the uh, Tibial Spine Research Interest Group with lead author Nirash Patel. He is also one of the co-hosts on the uh, Ped Sports podcast and really just a rising star in pediatric sports medicine and leading some really high-level studies, the sort of randomized stuff that our field needs and in this study, they basically looked at delayed surgeries for tibial spines. And um, they basically found that the patients who were um, getting surgery more than 21 days out from the injury, which they called delayed, were two and a half times more likely to have public insurance and about two and a half times more likely to have seen another provider before seeing their surgeon. And those surgeries ended up taking significantly longer also. So, you know, this is another one of these studies about these social factors that are just always so frustrating and disappointing to read and uh, no good solution I can see for it. JR, can you, can you tell us any more about this study or how these sort of social realities affect your practice? This affects all of us. This study was used the data that the tibial spine research interest group, which is one of the interest groups in PRISM, Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Society uh, has, you know, there's dozens of uh, research interest groups. So, this was a, um, a retrospective study looking at that data. And yeah, I mean, Niraj did a good job looking at it. And his, he had this very specific question and uh, essentially what were the causes of you know, delay to the OR. And I know, I, like, like you said, I don't have a great answer uh, <laughs> you know, to this. You know, I'm not a health policy expert, but you know, people in these types of studies look at you know, insurance status, uh, whether they're uninsured or underinsured. You know, people look at um, whether for good or for bad, uh, you know, race and ethnicity as a potential uh, factor, you know, um, contributing to this stuff. Uh, but uh, as you know, there's so, there's so many different social social issues that, that we have to be aware of um, and, and kind of try to contribute to equalizing as best as we can. But, you know, this paper was just really just highlighting, uh, again, uh, those types of issues and trying to kind of smooth the system for people that, uh, that might have dif difficulty, you know, accessing it. 
from that segue, let's go on to the next one, which is um, another one with co-author Dr. J.R. Cruz, our guest tonight. And this was the best video of the annual meeting. And it was a video on uh, tibial spine suture fixation. Uh, there were multiple authors. I believe the uh, Texas Children's was actually the host institution, mm-hmm. the home institution for this one. It's a great video for anyone who fixes uh, tibial spine fractures arthroscopically. I will definitely be watching it routinely now before uh, each one of these cases because they are pretty few and far between. So, JR, in your hands, are these all getting fixed uh, arthroscopically with suture or are you ever putting a screw in them? Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, first of all, yeah, this was uh, Neil Kushari at, at Texas Children's Hospital. He was the one that really spearheaded uh, this paper. And this is actually uh, just another shout out to Neil. I think this is his second in a row paper uh, that won the best video. Last year, he won best video for, I think, posterior ankle arthroscopy. So, he's like, he's the, vid- he's the positive video maven. I'm not sure what he's going to have for us in store uh, for this meeting. Uh, but but yes, yeah, so for tibial spines, I am doing it arthroscopically. Uh, I just feel like you can really get a good view of everything in the joint. And our group, the Tibial Spine Research Interest Group from PRISM, has, has uh, you know come out with a couple of papers showing that you do have a, a substantial number of concomitant injuries, meniscus tears, uh, uh, root tears, et cetera, that are going to be really difficult for you to address if you're not going to do it arthroscopically. Uh, so that's number one. And then in terms of suture versus screw, uh, you know, within the group, I think there's kind of a 50-50 split within our research group, whether or not uh, it's screw versus suture. For me, I, I bias towards suture uh, just because I feel like you can use this, you can use the same method for most of uh, the tibial spinal fractures, whether you have a pretty big uh, uh, osseous fragment whether it's just the sliver of a cartilage um, or maybe even if it's just like mostly an ACL avulsion, I feel like um, you can use suture for all those things. Uh, If I'm going to use a screw, it's usually for the really big tibial spine fracture, maybe older adolescent where I'm not so worried about, you know, crossing the places with a screw. That's kind of when I'm uh, reserving uh, using a screw. Right. And what kind of screw is it? I'll use like a a three, five or four cannulated screw. With a head like a cannulated cancella screw. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. With the head, because I, then I plan on taking the screw out, you know, later. Got it. And I'll usually use a washer too, just because I, uh, you know, I feel like I want to really spread forces across the entire tibial spine. One of those fancy soft tissue sporty washers or just a, uh, just a regular old, yeah. Good old fashioned AO, AO style. Nice. uh, Washer. And then the last study, I was interested to see that they noted that uh, getting an MRI was one of the things associated with delayed surgery in these cases. Are you getting an MRI on all of these? That's a great question. This is within the same thing. With, I'm going to go back to our research interest group, which has really generated a lot of questions. This is, this is also a little bit controversial. You know, some people get an MRI on everybody because they want to know everything that potentially can run into during the surgery. Some people will get an MRI if they're thinking about um, non-opping a tibial spine because the MRI might change your management. So for example, if you have a really minimally displaced like type two or two, or even a type one, a lot of people in the group will get an MRI because it might, again, it might tip them over the edge. They have an associated uh, meniscus tear. They might change their management and recommend surgery. Um, some people say if they're going to have surgery anyway, the MRI is, is a waste of time because you're going to, you're going to evaluate everything, presumably, you know, once you're, you know, once you're in the joint. So for me, I'm, I'm still getting an MRI for most of them. I just kind of like to know if I'm going to do surgery, what I'm, what I should be prepared for. And then um, for the ones that I'm thinking about 
not, not treating with surgery either bolsters my decision to treat them non-operatively or changes my management. You know, I understand that it can be difficult for some patients to get an MRI. You know, to be honest, I, I, for some, I have a pretty good relationship with the radiologists and the facilities that have the MRIs in Rhode Island. So I feel like we can, we can get most patients in that come through my office uh, to get an MRI pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, that makes sense if you feel like you can pretty confidently get it. And, you know, if you have some sneaky posterior horn capsular separation or something, you know, the MRI might, might help you catch it. So my two favorite points of this video, two favorite tricks, one was putting a, a pin in the fragment to hold it reduced, which is something I usually do. The other was doing a outside in proline suture around the uh, medial meniscus to pull it out of the fracture pull it out of the way, help your visualization. That is not something I've done before. I thought that was really cool. Um, are there any sort of favorite pearls that you have for these tough cases? Yeah, so that's that uh, proline suture. That's something that I learned from Todd Lawrence at CHOP. So that's, you know, when, uh, I, that's something that uh, he, I think, routinely does. Um, and it, it's really good. And then it frees up your hands. You just kind of hang a, uh, uh, a snap off of it. And it really it retracts the uh, suture really nicely. Um, in terms of other tips, I'll make a transpatellar portal. And that's going to be my viewing portal. And then rather than just working through your anteromedial, anterolateral portals to patch your sutures, uh, I'll put a cannula uh, in the anteromedial, anterolateral portal. And then now I have those cannulas. And now I'm not having to worry about the sutures kind of tangling in the soft tissues. Because the last thing you want, you're, you're working really hard to get that thing reduced. You're working really hard to pass the suture. Now, uh, now you're ready to kind of shuttle the sutures through your tibial bone tunnel. And then everything's stuck. And then, you know, that's the last thing I want to happen, you know, toward, uh, especially towards like, that portion of the case. So I think having some sort of either uh, a sh like a shoulder cannula or I use, Arthrex has something called the Passport where uh, yeah, I'll that's, use... Yeah, that's uh, what I was thinking of too. That's great. I, yeah. I'm going to write that on my list of tips for these yeah. procedures. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll use two passports, one in each, you know, and one in the anteromedial portal, one in the anterolateral portal, and then uh, I'll pass my sutures there. You just kind of turn it into like a rotator cuff surgery, I guess. That's great. A soft tissue bridge can definitely ruin your day. So I, I love yeah. that advice. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, next up, uh, the abstract that won the award for the best clinical paper. This was from Rady Children's Hospital with senior authors Andy Pinnock and Salilu Pasani, and it was on non-operative management of femoracetabular impingement, or FAI. This is a great study. We've discussed it on Pete Sports before, and it has really changed my practice. The authors have now written two studies in AJSM, and um, the first one, if you haven't looked at it, has this great supplement with a physical therapy protocol, and I print it out and give it to patients all the time if they're complaining of hip pain uh, to take to their physical therapist. In this study, the authors looked at patients um, with impingement and started treatment with non-op, and after five years, about three-quarters of them did well with just PT. About another 22% got a steroid injection. About half of those steroid injection patients went on to need surgery. So they concluded that non-op care works very well for the, uh, the vast majority of these patients. Are you guys seeing many hip pain patients in your practices? And what's your sort of approach to, to these tricky patients? Don't we kind of select what we do, our treatments based upon our skill set? You know, like if a patient comes to me with, you know, some impingement signs and some hip pain, because I don't do hip scopes. I love this paper because I can feel good about recommending uh, steroid injection and physical therapy, right? And uh, I guess it makes me feel like I can manage some of these patients. So I love this paper. And I think it's a very courageous paper because with all new technology, like clavicle plating, for instance, you know, clavicle plating came out like 10 years ago because of that Canadian paper and we all got to plate clavicles. Well, now the pendulum swung back that maybe we don't have to. 
uh, now we, I, a paper like this is helping us to understand that there are patients that may not need to have that operation. So I love this paper because I don't do hip scopes. Yet at the same time, I, I know that the, the, the next step is to figure out which of these patients, you know, uh, we can get to the appropriate treatment. So I'm interested what JR has to say, because I know this is kind of in your, this is in your wheelhouse. Yeah. I mean, I agree with everything that Ken said. I, I also don't do scopes when I, you know, when I joined my practice, there were already two people uh, doing hip scopes. So they get most of the, you know, patients that will eventually require hip scope, but I, I still do see patients, you know, with hip pain uh, in the office. And I agree when this paper came out uh, a few years ago, this was like, Oh, thank you. You know, this, this can kind of support, uh, what, to be honest, we, we had already been doing in our practice, uh, you know, talking to my partners that, that do hip stuff, you know, reviewing this paper, you know, this is similar to what they've already been doing, you know, they trial non-op, activity modification, and then uh, the patients that don't respond to that will go on to get a steroid injection by one of our uh, primary care sports medicine docs. If, you know, if they fail that and they have an indication for hip scope, then, then that's when they go on. And just talking to those those partners, they say, I, I think they would agree that probably uh, you can save a hip surgery uh, in three out of four of, of these patients. So, uh, you know, Andy Pennick did a <laughs> Uh, really did a, a service to you know all people, all pediatric orthopedic surgeons that that treat hip pain in adolescence. Yep. I've got a question for uh, for you, Jr. As one issue that I've and Josh may have heard me talk about one issue that I've had with this study, and again, I love this study and it's shaped my practice a lot, but I'm just not totally convinced by this and other studies that they really distinguish between impingement patients and mild dysplasia patients. And if you look at the X-rays in the study, it even looks like more like mild dysplasia. And I, I don't fault the authors at all, because I think in the seven years since they started this research, our whole field has learned a lot about distinguishing between mild dysplasia and impingement. Um, and there's all sorts of new radiographic measurements and exam findings and so forth. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that it matters that much, because I think at, at the end of the day, even if they're not impingement patients, they're quote unquote impingement sign patients, and they get better with physical therapy. And that's what we really need to know. So, uh, you know, in your practice, when you see the, these groin patients who have these sort of borderline, you know, borderline dysplasia versus impingement, are you typically treating all those sort of the same way with the injection physical therapy route? Yeah, I mean, I mean, hip pain is, is <laughs> you know, there's so many potential sources of hip pain. And it can be really difficult to distinguish, you know, one source from the other. So when I, you know, my approach to the initial hip pain patient is basically I treat them essentially the same, you know, via this protocol. And then if they're not improving and then you just kind of let them shake out uh, at the end and the ones that aren't improving, okay, then that maybe we should start scrutinizing a little bit closer as to what the exact cause of your hip pain is, because if they eventually go on to require a procedure, then you want to make sure that you're doing the right procedure. Great. Next up, we've got a paper that won the best basic science award. Um, so this was the best basic science paper from senior author Matt Ochin at uh, Children's National in DC. It is about compartment syndrome. And let me start by saying most of the basic science in here is way over my head. And the idea in general is that there are two parts of compartment syndrome that cause injury. First is the ischemia, which we can minimize with fasciotomies if we get there early. Second is the reperfusion injury and fibrosis, which may not be prevented by the fasciotomy. So in this study, the authors used Chantix, the smoking cessation drug, and showed that it suppresses the immune system, which reduces inflammation following compartment syndrome, and it also reduces long-term fibrosis. So this was in uh, mice. 
And in conclusion, really cool study. And maybe after a few more studies, we'll actually be giving Chantix for compartment syndrome. And um, other conclusion is that Matt Ochin is much smarter than I am. And I think Osmond is in good hands since he's in charge of the uh, upcoming meeting in Vancouver. Carter, I agree. Matt, Matt Ochin was my senior resident at Yale. And uh, he's always been way smarter than a lot of people, I think. <laughs> so shout out to Matt. You know, I, I know basic science studies aren't always the best for discussion, since I don't think any of us are going to delve into the science too much. Um, Ken, are there any sort of favorite pearls you like to tell trainees about compartment syndrome? I think Don Bay's group, their landmark paper looking at compartment syndromes and how increasing analgesic requirement, increased anxiety, increased agitation, you know, they precede the classic P's by seven hours, you know, and so... The key thing uh, for compartment syndrome in children is to just check the kid out. And, you know, when you walk in a room and the little boy is not watching TV, but is writhing around in bed, um, that's a kid who's getting a compartment syndrome because that little boy is going to watch TV till the house burns down. <laughs> you know, uh, so it's, it's those things. The most important thing we teach our residents is not the five P's, but the three A's that Don Bay and his group dis, uh, discovered maybe 15 years ago. Um, I think that's been just super important. And uh, and plus, all of us now starting to understand a little bit about pain, right? And that we used to think about pain being the fifth vital sign. But we also recognize that pain's super important to help us understand what's going on. And, you know, my fellowship director, Chad Price, used to say, you know, if the patient needs narcotics, then they need to be seen. So I, I think we've learned also from folks at uh, St. Chris's Hospital that looked at supraconal humerus fractures and found that Tylenol uh, was a great pain medicine. If you need more than Tylenol, then you need to be checking the patient out. And the final caveat, yeah, I can talk about compartment syndromes all night long, but the final caveat is like, because we're platooning a little bit more in medicine, we have pain services, we have orthopedic services, we have hospitalists, but hospitalists, they don't understand compartment syndrome. Anesthesiologists, they don't understand compartment syndrome. So when the third year anesthesia residents on call, and gets a call from the nurse because the tibial osteotomy patient isn't doing well, the guy or gal anesthesia says, we'll give more narcotics, but they don't really understand why there can be pain. And so as orthopedic surgeons, we have to make sure that our partners, our pain management partners and our hospice partners are well-versed in the signs and symptoms of compartment syndrome and that the pain should not just be treated, be fully evaluated. I think that's just super important for us to remember. Yeah, that's a great point. And it may need to be us on the floor pushing the patient to the operating room in those cases, uh, you know, if we're the ones that recognize it and take the responsibility. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for the insight on Jay Posna. And uh, mostly thank you for all the work you're doing on Jay Posna. Really, uh, really great publication you guys have put together and really something that I think we can all be proud of as Posna members. Yeah, thanks, Carter and Josh. Uh, again, uh, come come the new year, uh, submit your papers and volunteer to be reviewers. <laughs> yeah, more importantly, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank exactly. you. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight. We know it's very busy and we only have a podcast because of people like you who help come and support and share your knowledge. So thank you. Great. Thanks, Josh. Thank you guys for doing this. It's great. All right. Huge, huge pleasure. Thanks, Thank Ken. you so much. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Ken. Happy holidays. Thank you. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. You, you too. too.